We've been plowing through Isaiah uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, and we've come now to chapter 3. And I've headed our sermon tonight, Wheel and Woe. Wheel is an old English word for well, for being well. It's the opposite, exact opposite of woe. And we will uh, move eventually to a consideration of verses 10 and 11, which Uh, can be addressed under that heading of weal and woe. This is a chapter which speaks to the state of society in Judah around 720 BC. And the first thing we notice that it's full of present warnings to the people of God, warnings of judgment that is. At the end of chapter 2 we saw that there was a distinct prediction of the climactic future judgment of the world as it speaks about going into the holes of the rocks, into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And although many prophecies do have various outworkings at different points and there may be such an earlier outworking of this prophecy in terms of Changes, huge changes in society and terrifying changes in things that seem to be permanent. There's no doubt at all that it also refers to the end of the world. Revelation 6 takes up that particular prophecy and applies it in a terrifying way concerning people trying to hide from the face of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb at the last day. So chapter 2 ends with this warning of climactic future judgment at the end of the world, an end that is surely coming as the New Testament teaches. But uh, there are also preceding judgments which serve as reminders that there is that climactic judgment to come. I think last time we referred particularly to Romans chapter 1 as an example of that that the sins that were prevalent in Roman society, the homosexuality and other immorality and other sins, the apostle speaks of these as God's judgment on atheism, on putting the lid, as it were, on his existence and refusing to acknowledge it, refusing to acknowledge him as creator, but worshipping and serving the created order more than the creator and therefore he sends these judgments the sins themselves are also judgments but of course there is yet the end of the world and the final judgment to come we can liken it to a volcanic eruption you know before some major volcano such as Vesuvius is about to erupt there are minor earthquakes around the volcano and this is one way volcanologists know and predict that there is going to be an eruption they have their seismic uh, meters uh, in the ground and they can detect the vibrations and they know that something's coming well what we have here in Isaiah 3 is effectively God's seismic detectors of the final future judgment and how relevant what is said here is to our own nation at this time, indeed to many nations, particularly in the Western world. Present warnings of future judgment. We notice firstly in verse 1, the loss of material 
blessings. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store. That means all the supplies, basically. The whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. This immediately would make an informed Israelite think of God's covenant because that is one of his covenant judgments, that he takes away rain so that the heavens are as brass. The earth doesn't therefore produce crops uh, and, and that's part of his covenant judgment. And we, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that God is arraigning his people He's got them in the law court, so to speak. They're the defendants. They're in the dock. And so in verse 13 of this chapter, we read the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. We mustn't think of him pleading for mercy. This is a legal case that he's pleading, that he's arguing against them for their sins. That's the meaning of the word there, plead. The Lord will enter into judgment, and particularly with the leaders of the people. There's a loss of material blessing. There may be all the necessary expertise in terms of agriculture, in terms of farming in Israel at the time. But the basics are just not there because God is displeased. And then secondly, verses 2 to 4 of our passage takes us to the loss of suitable and mature leadership. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the honourable man, the counsellor, the skilful artisan, the expert enchanter, various kinds of wise men, and various captains and military men, and those who should know, the older people, the more ancient and experienced people. But they're not there. There is a lack of people of maturity and expertise in leadership and instead as he says in verse 4 I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them this is metaphorical language what it means is that there are immature people people of no experience people of no insight in leadership governing the various institutions of Judah and that's part of God's Judgment, And that is a precursor, a reminder of future judgment to come. And then we have thirdly, the loss of social concern. Verses 5 to 7, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbour. The child will be insolent towards the elder and the base towards the honourable. There's no... There's, it's not just a lack of courtesy, there's a, any, no, lack, no uh, kindness, there's no sense of neighbourly obligation. And let's not forget this is the people of God, this is Zion, God's people. And then verse 6, when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler, let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. They're desperate to find somebody who will rule over the mess. Desperate to find somebody who is willing to serve the community. But no one is willing to do it. 
And perhaps we have uh, later on there are female sins identified, but perhaps we have here male sins. As he goes on to say in verse 12, women rule over them. I don't think that is meaning literally there's no one else but women ruling over the people. What he means is that there's no masculine men. There's effeminacy, there's weakness in the leadership. Of course, even in the Old Testament, there were people like Deborah and Esther who were servants of the Lord. This is not to be taken literalistically. But it's to be taken as to the quality of the men, the lack of quality, the lack of social concern and concern for the good of the society, which is also a sacred society. It's God's society. And when you get these kinds of things in a society, it's a sure sign that there is a trembling, there's tremors in, in the ground, there's something terrible coming so we have present warnings secondly this chapter makes clear that there are present sins now already the prophet uh, speaking in God's name has identified many sins in the covenant nation in chapters one and two many things we've already looked at actually albeit rather briefly but he takes up various aspects Uh, in this chapter too for example he summarizes in verse 8 that their tongues and their doings are against the Lord what they say what they do breaks his word breaks the ten commandments breaks the other commandments of God Uh, the look on their countenance witnesses against them they declare their sin as Sodom they do not hide it Woe to their soul. There's a brazenness there. They advertise their sin. They're in the media of the, of the time. They're there for everybody to look at. No one is ashamed of it. It's, in fact, they're proud of their sin. I think we can uh, see some present-day application, can we not? And then as has already been identified some of the present warnings, some of the things that God is judging the people with are in themselves sins. Uh, So in verses 12 to 15, we're taken back to the effeminacy and weakness of the rulers rulers of the people. We're taken back to the um, lack of integrity, the lack of concern for the people, the oppression and the violence, crushing my people, grinding the faces of the poor. These are more sins that God identifies. And then finally, as far as this section is concerned, we note in verses 16 to 23 some revealing social trends. And we can summarize this section as the objectification of women and shameless immorality of women, which, of course, would mean that they are aided and abetted in that by men. They wouldn't do it unless the whole of the social order encouraged it. And so we have the daughters of Zion, haughty, walking with outstretched necks, wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. You can, 
You can just see it. You can just hear it. Just think of one of these catwalks uh, that you sometimes see um, on television. You can just see the, the, the kind of thing going on here. And what he's saying is that there's a shameless immorality about the way in which the women conduct themselves. And we see by this uh, catalogue of jewels, uh, of excessive jewels, verses 18, they go on and on, don't they? Conscious in reading it, just how it goes on and on. The, The anklets, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils. It isn't that the word of God forbids the wearing of jewelry by women. In this very same book of Isaiah, in chapter 61 and verse 10, We read about uh, the prophet saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, even the men were permitted to do it in certain contexts. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's not some great text to use about women using lipstick or something like that. That's not the point. The point is the shameless objectification and immorality behind it. It takes us in our thinking to 1 Peter and chapter 3, where Peter says of the Christian Wives, that they should be submissive to their own husbands and that their husbands should note uh, their chaste conduct accompanied by fear, that is, by piety. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. The emphasis, you see, is on inner beauty. It's not saying there's never an occasion when certain outward adornings can be used. What it's saying is don't just let it be merely outwards. And the whole context here in Isaiah 3 is one of hedonistic extravagance, is it not? No doubt something of the crushing of the poor and the grinding Uh, the faces of the poor, has contributed to the purses of these women. And they're now using that in adorning themselves in this way, aided and abetted and encouraged by men. And these are the things that God is displeased with in this society of his people. And that brings us now to the heart of our message This evening, verses 10 and 11. There are present warnings, there are present sins, and there is future woe and future and present weal, future and present comfort. Verses 10 and 11 stand together as a kind of couplet. They're prefaced by the words, say to, which puts the prophet in some sense as a wisdom teacher here. Uh, This is what the uh, commentaries inform us of, that this is a kind of wisdom teaching. There's something here rather like the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. 
Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Just in passing, there are two very similar verses in Ecclesiastes in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. What this wise man in Ecclesiastes and what this wise preacher here, Isaiah, is saying is that ultimately there are two classes of people. In this nation of Israel, in all its moral and spiritual decadence, there are two classes of people. There's a tiny remnant that fear the Lord because without them, Israel would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But there are the large majority of people who do not fear the Lord, the wicked. There are no in-betweens, no undecideds, no floating voters, no fence-sitters. We are each of us in one of those two classes, the righteous or the wicked. And the prophet's commission is to say to the righteous, it's to tell them this, it will be well with you. And his commission to the wicked is to say to them, woe, that is what you're heading for, woe to you. And we notice as we look perhaps first at verse 11, the woe to the wicked. We notice that some of that woe is described at the end of the chapter. We can say that this is moving from present judgments to a climactic judgment. These women who he has described in verses 16 to 23, it's a different scene now. In verses 24 to 26, no longer with all the perfumes and beautiful clothes and the well-set hair, what we have here now are women being taken off into slavery, deported by the Babylonians. Instead of a sweet smell, a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword. Your mighty in the war. He sees these women, these same women who have been behaving like princesses and celebrities. He now sees them all in a, in a row, as it were, with rope. Bringing them one after the other into a place of utter degradation and slavery. He sees an invasion and deportation. But you say, well, that's not till 586 BC. That's not for another 140 years or so. No, it's not. But the wheels of God grind surely, even when they grind slowly. And so people say today, I don't see any woe to the wicked. I don't see any of these things that you doom and gloom preachers talk about. No, the wheels of God do grind slowly, but they grind surely. And not for a moment does the prosperity of the wicked stop the principles of divine providence working out exactly as God plans. 
There's another passage in the Old Testament outside the wisdom books which stands as wisdom teaching. It's Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, hear what the psalmist says as he sits as a wise man to teach the children, the young people. He says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. Don't just judge things by the present. Don't just judge things by present prosperity and present apparent power and present apparent enjoyments and by the spreading of himself like a bay tree or a native green tree. You've got to look to the future. The time will come when you'll look for that person and he will not be found. He will be under the judgment of God. Because there is something inexorable and relentless at work. It's God's providential judgment. Sooner or later he catches up with sinners. Sooner or later, make no mistake, whatever you and I and anybody sows, that we shall reap. That's what it says. And God catches up with us. If we're in Christ, praise God, we're sheltered from the wrath that we deserve. But if we're outside of Christ, sin will bring its own wages. As it says here, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given with him. Given him. Woe to the wicked. But you say the wicked seem fine. Those who don't think of God, those who don't darken the door of his house, those who don't hear his word or care about it, they seem fine. But it is woe with them. Why? Because God says so. God says it's woe with them. And he noticed it's a bit frightening, is it not? Whereas in verse 10, it's in the plural, it shall be well with them. In verse 11, with the wicked, it shall be ill with him. There's a particularity and an individuality here. God is saying, you may be amongst others who are righteous, but there's no shelter in the crowds. I know your sins, and I will come for you. Didn't the Lord Jesus say exactly the same thing in his sermon concerning the end of the world? Matthew 24, as he talks about two people, two men in the field, one taken and the other left. He's come for the one to take him to heaven, but he's come for the other to take that person to judgment. Two, well it's translated as women here, two women grinding at the mill. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Both in proximity one to another, both working together. And yet one knows him. One is righteous. And it's well with that person, that man, that woman. The other does not. They're wicked. And they'll be taken. They'll be punished. Woe to the wicked. 
What a heap of woe. Are you in that category? Are you amongst them? Still in your sins? Still under the wrath of God? No repentance in your hearts? No knowledge of Christ as your saviour? Hear God's word to you. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him. But we have here also future comfort and indeed present comfort. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. You see, remember it's in Isaiah's day, it's a tiny remnant. Isaiah, the prophetess, their family, a few others. They're in the worst of circumstances. Society is dominated by black sins and degradation and failure of leadership and awful immorality. Society is dominated by that, but God says, I'll still look after you. I know how to look after my children. Even in the worst circumstance, it shall be well with you. Isn't that a comfort to us, brothers and sisters, who by grace have been saved and who deserve to go to hell with the ungodly? But we've been saved by God's grace. And God is saying, even though you live in a spiritual and moral cesspit, I'll look after you. It will be well with you. Wheel to the, wheel to the righteous. The book of Job. Job has his three so-called friends. They're pretty brutal at times, but sometimes they say some great things, especially Elihu. And in Job 5, Elihu says this. He says, he, that is God, shall deliver you, that is the righteous, in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. What he means is that your body may be afflicted, but your soul is safe. Even in material loss, God will look after you. Even when the wicked is flourishing like a green bay tree, God knows that the future of the righteous is secure. Because you have, even if you have nothing else, you have the testimony of a good conscience. Even if like the Lord Jesus Christ, you are despised, afflicted, you stand before your persecutors, but he had the testimony of of a good conscience before Pontius Pilate and before Caiaphas. You could say at that point that was all he had. But he had that. And it was worth everything. The psalmist says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. The Lord, the wicked, watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. And sometimes he does slay him, of course, if we take the whole of Scripture. But in many individual cases, the law will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. And even if he is slain, even if like Stephen, he goes into eternity, he goes straight to the Savior. Well with you in your soul. Well with you in your eternal future. Well, well, say to the righteous, it shall be well with them. Their worst problems are over the moment they've trusted in Christ as their saviour. Their worst problems are over. Their greatest enemy is disarmed. 
What is your greatest enemy? It's God. It's God. The wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But he's disarmed. He's laid aside his weapons of war. He's vented his fury upon your Savior, Jesus Christ. What's your next worst enemy? Perhaps we could say sin. But sin shall have no more dominion over you. You're not under sin anymore. You're under the dominion of grace. What's your next worst enemy? Death. But death has lost its sting to the believer. It shall be well with you. Your best things are safe. Your eternal future. Your fellowship with God. Your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with the people of God. And even the worst things that are going on in society which may greatly distress you, somehow in the providence of God, these things are working together for your good because everything works together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It shall be well with you. You will eat the fruit of your doings. That's not saying that you have earned your salvation. What it is saying is that once salvation is in you, you then produce good works to the glory of God and that will bring its own reward and its own blessing. Which of these two groups do you belong to? The wicked or who through God's grace in Christ, the righteous? Do not comfort yourself if you belong to the wicked and say it's going to be well with me. It isn't. But if you belong to the righteous, do not say to yourself, Woe, everything is out of joint, everything is wrong, woe to me, it's terrible. No, don't say say that to yourself. Listen to the wise man. Listen to the prophet as he sits in the seat of wisdom. It shall be well with you.